Former President Ronald Reagan once had an aunt who took him to a cobbler for a pair of new shoes. And the cobbler asked him, said, uh, do you want a pair of square shoes uh, at, the, at the front? You want them square or do you want them round? You want square toes or round toes? And Reagan was not able to decide. An indecisive uh, young boy, he could, he could not decide what he wanted. So the cobbler said, I'll give you a few days uh, to decide what you want. Several days later, the cobbler saw Reagan on the street and asked him again what type of shoes did he want? Uh, what kind of toes did he want on his shoes? Reagan still could not decide. So the shoemaker replied, come by in a couple of days and your shoes will be ready. When the future president came by, when he did that, he found that the cobbler had made for him one square-toed and one round-toed shoe. The cobbler told the young Reagan, This will teach you to never let people make decisions for you. You need to make your own. I learned right then and there, Reagan would later say, that if you don't make your own decisions, someone else will make them for you. You know, the Christian life, the great freedom that Christ has purchased for us by the blood of Christ that we have sung about this morning, this great freedom that Christ has purchased for us, allows us all types of choices and decisions about how we will exercise this freedom. Uh, and there is, there's a lot of freedom in Christ. It's a big theme in the Bible, uh, but the New Testament also tries to lay out for us the principles, the commands, the teachings that should guide the freedom that we have in Jesus. So how will we exercise our Christian freedom? The Apostle Paul is a wonderful example for us. In today's text, we're going to see Paul show us, model for us, how to honor Christ by showing a deference and a costly, emphasis on costly, Paul is going to show us how to exercise our freedom in Christ by showing a deference and a costly concern, costly for us, a costly concern for our fellow Christians as we make decisions. So I want you to go to Acts chapter 21. We're going to read verses 17 through 26, and we're going to see today Paul's purification choice, this choice that Paul makes to go through a process of purification, and he's going to do this for other brothers and sisters in Christ. So Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 17. Now, remember, Paul has been trying to get to Jerusalem. He wants to go to Jerusalem. He said he's been bound by the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ, and this is leading him there, that he must go. And we've seen how when you read the, 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 these events, in so many ways they mirror what actually happened to Christ as well. There are some differences, but in some ways it's striking some of the similarities about what uh, Paul is going to do and even the language that he's using to describe what he's got to do and how that mirrors Jesus' last entrance into Jerusalem. And by the way, the similarities are going to get even more intense over the next few weeks. Verse 17, today he's finally 
there. 21.17, when we came to Jerusalem, so Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, he's now back to using the we language, that they, they are with him, his group. Remember, they're bringing a big offering to give to the church there. This is a suffering church, a persecuted church. There's been both some famine in the land around this time, and they're being persecuted by Jews. And the Roman government has turned up persecution on all Jews, and then the Jews in Jerusalem themselves have turned up persecution on Jews who are the followers of Christ. So the church is, is getting it from all sides, and Paul brings this financial gift to help them. When we came to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us, so they go together, to James. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who is an elder within the church. We came unto James, and all the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought. He tells them what God has done among the Gentiles by his ministry. He tells them about the churches that have been planted and the literally thousands upon thousands of Gentiles who have entered into the family and the kingdom of God. He gives them this great financial gift, and they get to celebrate all these Gentiles that have become believers. And we'll celebrate tonight little Lucianne who gave her heart to Christ, and tonight she's going to publicly testify that through her baptism that she's been saved. Boy, if that just makes Sunday a lot better when you know you get to celebrate a salvation, say amen. All the things he'd done among the Gentiles by his ministry. Verse 20, when they heard it, how do they respond? They glorified the Lord. And they said unto him, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe. So he tells them about, I mean, there are Jews that got saved on Paul's mission as well. But he's really apparently emphasizing all these Gentiles that come to faith in Christ. And they get to respond back and say, guess what, Paul? While you've seen all these thousands and thousands come to faith in Christ where you've been, when, since the last time you've been to Jerusalem, there have been thousands and thousands of Jews who have become followers of Christ. The church has continued to explode, not just all around the Mediterranean, but right here in the midst of all we've been going through. We have seen people continue to get saved. Verse 20, when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to Paul, you see, brother... How many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. So these are Jewish Christians who believe in Jesus and also very much respect their tradition and their laws and their culture. And they say, Paul, there are, it's been an explosion of folks that have embraced Yeshua, that have embraced Jesus as the Messiah, as their Savior. But you need to know something. They are very zealous for the law. And they are informed of you. They've heard about you. And what they heard is this, that you teach all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after their customs. What is it there for? What, what's really going on, Paul? We don't really believe this, but this is what's been said about you. The multitude must need, the multitude's going to come together and they will hear that you have come. So this has got to be addressed. 
Have you been telling Jews to abandon all of their customs? Have you been telling them not to circumcise their children? Have you told them that they need to abandon the Old Testament, its teachings, and, and the national rituals that uh, are part of being a Jew? You know, we've got we to talk about this. So the elders and James say, do therefore this that we say to you. They say, we, we have a solution to show those that come that what they have heard about you is not true. That these have been lies have been spread to try to stop Jews from embracing Jesus. What is the solution? And it's a costly solution. Look at verse 23. We have four men which have a vow on them. Probably a Nazarite vow, which we'll talk about in a minute. That's probably what it is. They're in the midst of this, this Nazarite vow. More than, more than likely, Nazarite vow. So we want you to then take, there's four of them, and purify yourself with them. So part of their vows, you're going to see in a minute, there's a purification part of the vow. And they said, we want you to go and purify yourself with them. Now, I, I'm going to skip ahead for a minute. Why, did he, why might they ask that? Well, he's been a Jew traveling in Gentile nations. He has been in Gentile nations that do not believe the law of God, do not embrace the law of God. He's been around uh, Gentile pagans that are not followers of Jesus. Uh, and he's been exposed in those nations to a lot of unclean things. So a lot of times a Jew, when they would come back to their homeland, they would go through a purification to, to show that I've been out among these Gentiles, these that do not believe God, but now I'm going to purify myself because I'm going to be back around uh, believers that, that have the law of God, believe the law of God and the word of God. They say, we want you, uh, they're going through this vow, and the purification part, we want you to go through with them. And then... To be at charges with them. That's what the King James says. What does that mean? That means we want you to pay, we want you to pay what it costs for them to complete their vows. Because there are certain sacrifices and gifts and payments that they have to make as a part of the vow to show that they're actually serious about it. And so he says, Hey, we want you to pay the money that these four guys have to pay. And the sacrifices you're going to see in a minute to complete the vow. Wow. Take them. Purify yourself with them. Be at charge of them. Pay their fees that they may shave their heads. We'll talk about that in a minute. That all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning you are nothing. That, that you do this act. And this act in some ways goes above and beyond and it sends a message to everybody that this is not true, that you are not telling Jews that they have to abandon Moses or their traditional customs, that that's not true. But, verse 24, that you yourself also walk orderly, because he's a Jew, you walk under the order of the Jewish uh, customs and you keep the law. As touching the Gentiles which believe, and we've already seen this, as the Gentiles believe, we've written, and we've already concluded that they observe no such thing. They do not have to do this. They're not part of the Jewish nation. They don't have this cultural history. They don't have to engage in any of these things. We've told them that, and, and they say, Paul, we want you to know. We've, we've been preaching the truth. We've done exactly what we have said since the last time this came up, and you were a part of that, Paul. We've told them the only thing Gentiles have to do is to keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from the strangled and from fornication. They said that. We, we, have, we have told them that. Verse 26, so Paul's got a choice. What does Paul do? Because again, this isn't just about what Paul's going to do. It's about paying for other people and, and financially, Paul making a financial investment in others to go through this vow. 
Then Paul took them in. And the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until an offering should be offered for every one of them. What a joyous meeting here. Paul has brought a large financial gift to the suffering Jerusalem church. Paul is able to tell thousands of Gentiles who have become Christ followers. Can you imagine uh, being a fly on that wall and observing Paul come back from this missionary journey and they'd be able to celebrate all the churches that have been planted, all the thousands saved, the expansion of God's people. And then to hear the James and the elders talk about the thousands of Jews that in the midst of persecution in Jerusalem have become followers of Christ. But there is a concern. And it is a real concern because it has the power to undermine the message, the preaching, the teaching of Paul. And it has the ability to split the church in two. The church at Jerusalem, these Jewish Christians, they are zealous for the law. And this is an important moment in the national history of Israel because the tensions against the Romans are escalating. And we know it'll only be a few years until a great Jewish revolt will take place in which the Jews will ultimately be defeated and they will be kicked out of their homeland. Uh, most of them, many of them, they will be run off. And this sort, of, this sort of tension is getting really hot at this moment. And so there are lots of people that are, that are part, they're, they're Israelis, they're Jews, they're Hebrews, and their country is coming to a war with their Roman impress, uh, oppressors, and it's moving towards that point. So at the same moment that the Jewish nation is moving to this revolt against the Romans that have conquered their land, so the, the, the feel of nationalism is high, and, and, and a lot of that was justified and good, by the way, the Romans had oppressed them. They were, uh, they, 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 they were not allowing them to rule themselves. All of that is true. While that was going on, you also have people that are uh, saying that Jesus is the Messiah. So you have, as part of this resistance to Rome, a new fervency about being a Jew and following the law and their religion because that was a way to make clear, I'm not a Roman, I do not support the Romans, I do not want the Romans here. At the same moment that is going on, you have these other folks that are becoming followers of Christ. And you can see the tension that is going on that Paul has walked right into. These believers are zealous for the law. These believers have been told Paul that you teach Jews to forsake Moses, to not circumcise their children, to not walk according to the customs. So the church leaders propose a course of action, and Paul agrees. And this course of action has puzzled many people since. Many people have been puzzled by this course of action. And why does Paul take this course? Why does he take the purification decision? Why does he embrace what they said? All right, so this is the suggestion, right? Four men have taken a vow. Look at verse 23. They say, Paul, do therefore this that we say to you. We have four men which have, a, have taken a vow on them. Probably the Nazarite vow. Now, you won't, I'll read this to you, all right? So look here. Here's the Nazarite vow. A Nazarite was a man or woman who took a vow to separate his life for the service of the Lord to live consecrated unto him. And you can see there, this guy, he's got, he's, he's got, he's got long hair. Long hair, long, long beard. What, what was the Nazarite vow? 
So this is a covenant. This is a promise. Number one, they were abstained absolutely from wine or strong drink, including any products of the vine in any form. So grapes, uh, raisins, all this kind of stuff, and wine and strong drink, they're abstained from all of it. They would not let a razor touch their head, but would let the hair grow naturally as a crown to God. So if I understand right, as they enter the end of the vow part, of, 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 of completing the initiation of the vow, they would shave their head. They would do this as a sign of purification, and then they would just let the hair grow. And it would grow and grow and grow, and it was a sign unto God that this is a crown unto God. My, 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 my hair is, is to His glory. You, can see, you can't see the picture that well, but you see women who would have let their hair grow. And, and you can imagine as they lived into this vow, uh, some of you maybe uh, in older days, especially uh, more holiness type groups, the old school Pentecostal groups, not, not most of what's gone on since the 60s forward, but old school holiness groups, old school Pentecostals, you would see the women who had the long hair and they would, they would tie this hair up up high. By the way, let me, just, let me just let you know something. So I used to always wonder the Puritans who were great believers. I would see those pictures where they came to America and they all had hair, like a lot of them, you know, they had hair down to here, like way longer. And, and you know, my parents were always like, you're not going to have long hair, you're not going to do that. And I would see them be like, well, these guys, their hair, like, it's, it's super long. What? Here's the thing. Long hair can be a subjective term because when you have women that are growing hair all the way down to their feet, if you have hair to your, to your shoulders, that's not very long. Uh, so, so, so sometimes that can be a little subjective, but the Bible, here's the principle. A man needs, needs to be clear, a man is a man in how you dress. And it needs to be clear that a woman is a woman in how she dressed and how she, how she uh, uh, conducts herself. And in different cultures, that might look a little bit different, but we all need to adhere to that standard. And if we will do that, if men will say, I'm going to dress, act, look in a way where it's very clear to everybody that I am a man and there's no confusion about that by looking at me. And if women dress, act, and behave in a way that makes it clear that it's a woman, then we can have all kinds of freedom. But we must agree on that. Amen? We must. By the way, there are those that do not. We must agree on that. Or then we can't exercise the freedom. The women would grow the hair. The men would grow the hair crowned to God. They would not let a razor touch his head, but would let his hair or her hair grow naturally as a crown to God. They would not allow themselves to draw near a dead person, even a member of their own family. So as they're going through this vow, they will not, they will not approach the dead. Consecrate themselves to the Lord. In numbers where you get this vow, they will abstain from wine, vinegar, grape juice, fresh grapes, fresh raisins, no razor upon their head. They will not go near a dead body. Even if it's a member of their own family, if they do come into contact with a dead body, they would undergo an eight-day purification. At the completion of the vow, once you had agreed that you would do this vow, and you'd go through an initiation period to show that you were actually serious about it, you would offer a gift at the tabernacle, or if you were in Jerusalem, you could offer it at the temple. And listen to what it requires you to enter into this way of life. It is a costly choice to enter into this vow. There was a one-year-old male lamb that had to be given as the burnt offering. There was a one-year-old ewe lamb that had to be offered as a sin offering. There was a ram that had to be offering as, offered as a peace offering. There was a basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, a grain offering 
that must be given along with a drink offering, all of which the priest would use to complete the vow over the Nazarite. The elders asked Paul to enter into this vow that these men are a part of by entering into the purification uh, part of it. Not as one who's, who's, I don't think, entering into a Nazarite vow because that was the 30-day minimum involved in that. And they're saying, Paul, we want you to jump right in here with them at the purification. So again, I think, what is this? He's got to be purified because he's a Jew who's been traveling in Gentile nations to interact with those Jews that are zealous for the law. He's got to be purified to be around them, to talk with them, to enter into their meetings to do this. So they say, we want you to do this and... We want you to pay the fee for not one, not two, not three, but all four of these men who are going through this vow. You pay the fee so they can shave their heads. Now why do all this? Why do this? Well, the elders say, by this costly act, you will show everybody that what they have heard about you is not true. They will see that you as a Jew continue to embrace the customs of the law and that it is Gentile believers who you've been telling do not have to do these things, that don't have to consider the law at all, but that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, sexual immorality. But Paul you have stood up for the Gentiles in the church. But there have been thousands of Jews that have been saved. And Paul, they are, they are concerned. They are wavering. They are wondering. And Paul, we need you to send a message to them as well. This is the council of James and the elders of the church in Jerusalem. To stop false rumors. We know it's a false rumor that he's telling them, don't circumcise your children. Because we've already seen that he took Timothy who was, I believe, half Greek, half Jew. And when Timothy entered into the entourage, do you remember what he did? He circumcised him. So we see the elders' suggestion. But secondly, we see Paul's purification choice, which I think has deep implication for how all of us think about the choices that we make in our life, how we use our Christian freedom. Now, I'm just looking around this room. And I think there are a couple of folks here that might not be Christians, but the vast majority of the people in this room have made professions for Christ. And most of you in this room, if asked, this is a good thing about being a pastor for a long time, most of you looking around this room, I could point to things and say, here is fruits of your salvation. Most of you in this room, I can, I can do that with. So I think this message for believers today, this is really, really important. Because we really need to think about why Paul did this. Look at verse 26 again, all right? So their, their suggestion, now look at Paul's choice, verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until an offering should be offered for every one of them. So Paul enters the temple with the four men, going through this purification. They apparently go to announce the completion of the time of purification uh, to move into now this offering stage that needs to be made for every man. Why did Paul do this? There are several views, and I want to share them with you. And if you disagree with me, we can, we can talk about it later in the week or something, but I, I want to give you the views. 
And I want us to think about this together because this is really important. Number one, some people say that Paul acted ignorantly here. That Paul was not fully aware yet that the law was no longer binding. But I believe that is just plain wrong. Because we know from Acts 20 that Paul has already preached the whole counsel of God. We also know chronologically by this point he has also penned Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and Galatians. All of which deal with these questions and all of which show us Paul is anything but ignorant about the law and the relationship of it to Jews and Gentiles. So I think whatever Paul is doing, he is not making an act of ignorance. Others say that under a moment of peer pressure with these uh, Jewish elders and James, which by the way, you need to understand, this elders, this, this means a lot to them. The, the, I mean, this, and listen, I, one thing, one thing I, I uh, will never forget, when I, when I was at Duke, I, you know, I worked for a professor there, and one time I got to go to this meeting of just faculty because the professor I worked for was giving, he was giving a talk uh, about Billy Graham. And honestly, a lot of the professors there did not like him because they did not like his theology and they did not like his stance on the gospel, which I obviously loved and agreed with and thought, um, you know, uh, there may be some di- you know, little thing I'd quibble with, but I believe what Dr. Graham preached about salvation was spot on. And, 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 and hey, we all need to be saved. Amen? So, so I worked for this professor and he was giving this talk and so I got to go. And I, got to, I was the only student in that meeting with the faculty, and they really showed their fangs, and they really showed how they felt. And, 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 and uh, I mean, it was intense. And he gave his talk, and he, and he was, in the main, the guy I worked for, he, he was sympathetic of Dr. Graham. But there were some people in there who, who, who were not. And, man, they, they were intense. And, they, and there, was, uh, you know, there, was some, there was some anger there. And, 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 and I remember something that uh, got brought up in that meeting. One of them raised the question. This is after the Nixon tapes. You know, they keep, they, keep re- they keep releasing the tapes of Nixon. Some of them they kept, had to keep for a while that they didn't release. In those tapes, unfortunately, a lot of believers trusted Nixon. And then when those tapes have come out, just... Because he presented himself as, oh, yeah, you know, to Dr. Graham. Oh, yeah, I, Christian. And, 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 and what you guys are, how people ought to talk and how they ought to walk. And, and then the tapes came out. And, I mean, just the language that he used... When people like Dr. Graham would leave the room, what he would then say to the people that were really in his inner circle, I mean, it was just unbelievable. And so in that room, someone raised their hand and they said, we listen to these tapes now with Dr. Graham and President Nixon. And he never stands up to him. He never challenges him. He never does any of that. He never does. And I remember my, my professor, he looked back at him, he said, I know, all you, I know all us professors in this room, we think if we met with the president that we would let him have it. And he said, that's not true. He said, if you went to the White House on his terms and got invited in his office, the vast majority of us would not other than, yes, sir, thank you for allowing me to come. I appreciate you. I'm a little concerned about this, but most of us would be really, really like, careful in how we said it. That's just a fact. Some people say that this is what Paul is now doing. Because the elders to him are the equivalent of the president in a lot of ways. These are the leaders. These are leaders. And, and people say, well, Paul got nervous around them. 
And he wasn't ignorant, but he gave in to the peer pressure of what they wanted. And so this decision that Paul makes, it's one made under peer pressure where he just kind of recognized, okay, I know I really don't like what they're saying, and I really don't like this, but there's so many of them, and they're in control of these thousands of people, and so I'm just going to do what they want just to, just to do this. And they say, Paul gave in to peer pressure, and he acted hypocritically like Peter did at Antioch. I don't think so. I don't think so because Paul has already endured so much mistreatment by everybody. And Paul has already shown over and over again that when people try to put restrictions on the gospel and the freedom of the gospel, he will not budge. And this has cost him and he has refused to do this before. And I think we've already been told, he said, I'm willing to be bound and to die for Jesus. So I don't think a guy who has said this and believes this and is now walking towards his imprisonment and his future death, I do not believe this is a guy who's going to give in just because some folks disagree with him. I do not believe he's behaving inconsistently. I believe Paul is behaving consistently with what he has taught already in Romans, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and what we've even seen in the book of Acts. What has he taught? The law is no longer in force in the way it had been previously. Justification comes by faith in Christ, not by the law of Moses, yet a Jewish Christian like Paul could observe the customs of the law. As long as they clearly understood that that's not how they were saved by keeping the law, and as long as they did not make any attempts to make others, especially Gentiles, observe the law that they were choosing to continue to culturally live into. A Christian Jew could observe elements of the law, but they could not do it seeking justification. Preacher, what do you mean by justification? Justification is how we're right with God. He makes us just. And you're not made just by keeping the law. You're not made just by keeping the Ten Commandments because you cannot keep the law. Jesus is the only man that ever kept the law. And it is the God-man who perfectly kept the law, who died for you so that you could be saved and so you could have victory in your life. You want to do the customs? Fine. But you better understand. You better know. That in no way are you justified by the keeping of these things. The law points to Jesus who perfectly kept it. There's only one sacrifice that matters in the end. And that is Christ's sacrifice. So any sacrifice that a Jew would make were remembrances, shadows of the true who had come in Jesus. Number two, again, they could do these things, but Paul is clear. You cannot bind the conscience of others to them. So I think Paul did what he has always been willing to do. Paul has shown us in the book of Acts that he is willing to do anything personally that he can do to see a Jew or a Gentile saved and living for Christ. And anything he can do to remove a stumbling block for those who have embraced him. So Paul shows that he will use his radical freedom in Jesus to do anything he can to help others become saved and to follow Christ. He'll do anything he can. And at the same time, it's not either or, it's both and. Both as he's going to help sinners in any way come to embrace Jesus, that is, that is allowed by God. 
He, he's not going to go against the Word of God to do that, but everything allowed within, within God's Word and our freedom in Christ, He'll do anything He can to see somebody saved. Boy, if you're glad for that, say amen. You better be, because we're a bunch of Gentiles. You better, be, you better be real glad. I'll do anything. But at the same time, both as He uses His radical freedom to see anybody saved He can, He also has a deep concern that I will both try to save as many as I can, and I will do anything I can in that process to not be a stumbling block to any believer, Gentile or Jew. So to the Gentile, he says, hey, this stumbling block of telling them they have to embrace Jewish customs to be saved, that is a stumbling block that is not true, and that stumbling block must be removed, and I will not back down, and I will not give in to peer pressure, and I will not, and he's shown this over and over again, I will not budge on this. We will not put this stumbling block that Jesus has not called for in front of these Gentiles. And, and, he, and, he, and, Paul, and Paul, he loses some friends over that. And slander starts about him because of that. And lies, are, but he won't budge. Now, it is time for the Jewish people to also show for them that he will in any way possible remove any stumbling block to his people becoming followers of Jesus. So what is the stumbling block here? The stumbling block here is the lies that he doesn't, that he's telling Jewish people not to circumcise their children, that he's telling them to just ignore Moses, to not, to not take any of that into consideration. These are the lies, and these lies have become a stumbling block. And this is what is amazing about Paul. They're not true. So my gut reaction many times is to see, those are not true. And if anybody believes them, a pox on their house, I'm going to have nothing to do with them. They should know better. And you know what Paul says? You, you think I'm going to pay for these four guys to have a vow? To put down what that's going to cost me? After instead of, and I've been working as a tent maker, even though I could have said, hey, a, a workman's worthy of his hire. The church should support me like everybody else. I chose not to do that. And now the money that I earned through tent making now I've got to use that to pay for vows of four other people because the lies have been spread about me. You have lost your mind. Charles Cook is not going to do that. Those people can grow up, and I'll tell them the truth, and they can accept it or not. But that's not what Paul does. That's not what Paul does. Young people, you, you want to you grow in your Christian faith, you better grab hold of what Paul does. Paul says, okay. Okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. I will engage in costly sacrifice for my Jewish brother just as I have engaged in costly sacrifice for my Gentile brother. I will do it for them both. It cost him to stand up for the Gentiles. And it's going to cost him to stand up and let the Jews know that I love you too. And I'm concerned about your Christian walk. And I'm concerned about you not being misled in this high, intense moment, this nationalistic moment within Israel. I want you to understand that, yes, you can be a follower of Christ and be a good Jew as well. And I'm going to help you see how to do that. Paul's going to remove the stumbling block while also showing that he respects, honors, and is proud of his Jewish cultural heritage. And he will do this not through just words, but through acts that will cost him financially a lot. There's four of them. 
financially to do it. You see, friends, lots of us say that we're willing to sacrifice for others. But few of us are willing to really go the extra mile with our Lord Jesus. We are like those who, when it comes to this type of sacrifice, we hedge, we fudge. We're like the rich young ruler that Jesus, this is a little too much to ask of me. You see, Jesus honored Father God supremely and perfectly in word, in deed, and in how he sacrificed for others during his life and in that great sacrifice on the cross. Would you stand with me this morning? Father God, we've tried to teach today. We've tried to instruct, and these are deep waters. These are deep things that Paul did, but they are so important. Lord God, I ask that, there's, that there would be some young people right now, Lord, who are deeply convicted. Lord, I pray that they would be deeply convicted to take much more serious their life choices, whether they are encouraging people to walk with Christ or whether they are a stumbling block for anybody. Lord, I pray that there would be some fathers, some mothers, some husbands, some wives that would think about their choices and whether or not they are a stumbling block or whether they are engaged in costly sacrifice. Lord, we're not preaching new legalism today. We're just preaching a deep love. Lord, this is mostly Christians here today. Mostly believers. And Lord, I'm worried in our church today, God, I'm worried. It's been a long time since some of them considered making deep sacrifices for others to help them in their walk. Father God, I don't want to be like the compromising church. I don't want to be like the church that has forgotten what it means to live holy, to walk holy, to love others so deeply that our preference doesn't matter anymore. Father God, I believe there are some people in this room that if they would consecrate their heart to you today, that if they would make a radical choice for others, that revival could break out in this church. That not just one or two, but hundreds could be saved for the cause of Christ. Father God, as we sing, if there's one, young or old, if there's one that's willing to sacrifice for their brother or sister, Holy Spirit is moving them in that way. Lord, I pray that they would respond to your spirit. Father God, I ask this in Jesus' name.